Families often celebrate the first word that a baby speaks. Much is also made of the last words of a dying man or woman. Perhaps sometimes too much is made of those words. While he lay dying, Karl Marx was urged by his housekeeper to speak his last words so that she could record them for posterity. Get out, he snapped at her. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. A pretty grumpy man as he died. But Marx, I think, probably had something of a point. Far more should be made of the words that we speak during our lives. And should God permit of the last words that we write when we know that we are about to die. It was common for soldiers in the Civil War to write a letter to their loved ones on the eve of battle. They would secure these letters somewhere on their person, put it in a pocket or something along those lines in case they didn't return from that battle. Perhaps someone would find the letter and pass it on to their families. A last word from the battlefield. Now these were last words that mattered. They were worth hearing. They were worth preserving. They were so compelling the living would read them over and over again. From my wife's mother we've received such words as she was passing away. And I can still think of phrases from that letter given us so many years ago. Last words, when they are written to be remembered, matter. Now our text this morning, if you'll make your way to 2 Timothy chapter 4, are just such words. 2 Timothy chapter 4, our text preserves the last written words of the Apostle Paul, and they are indeed worth hearing. They soar in glorious closure, bearing witness to a life lived with singular devotion to God and the advance of the Gospel. Where does Paul end these words? His last will and testament found in verse 6 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Rich words. No shame. No regrets. No fear. No self-pity. Nothing essential left undone. Much that He would like to see happen, but nothing left undone and utter confidence in God's grace. Paul was ready to meet Christ and enter His reward, and he leaves behind for us these words, this legacy, I have kept the faith. I look forward to what Christ holds for me in eternity. Having soared the heights in this will and testament, Paul now closes his letter by attending to some last details as a field general in the spread of the gospel. Now, what follows here in verses 9 through 22 are fairly mundane instructions and notices. But let's remember these are not meaningless words. 
In these last instructions, we visit the front lines of battle and we hear the spirit of a seasoned soldier of the cross. From his prison cell in Rome, Paul instructs his colleague in the gospel enterprise, Timothy, who is stationed most likely in Ephesus, a long ways away. As we listen in, we must understand that Timothy is part of Paul's team of missionaries. We've seen this team through our studies of the New Testament, through Acts and through the pastoral epistles. We need to remember there is this squad of trusted evangelists scattered across much of the Roman Empire. They are working together as a network of coordinated efforts to spread the gospel in establishing churches. Paul will soon be off the scene. These labors in the gospel continue to carry on their work. And he's very concerned about them. In verses 9-13, through 13, Paul updates Timothy concerning the status of this network of fellow labors that Paul is managing in the Gospel. He gives instructions to Timothy for his next assignment. So we, we consider Paul's team, this Gospel team, chapter 4, verse 9. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Do your best might be a bit of a weak translation of the Greek word which indicates urgent haste. Timothy, when you receive this letter, I want you to make immediate plans to leave where you are to come to Rome as quickly as you can. Why, Paul? Why does Paul want Timothy to come to him? Well, we know from what we've understood already in the letter that Paul is about to die and he wants to spend some time with Timothy as he hands the torch of the Gospel off to him and keeps it in his care while his candle is extinguished. Secondly, winter is approaching, verse 21. If Timothy does not hurry, the shipping lanes will be shut for the winter, closed down, and Paul may lose this last opportunity to speak with Timothy and to invest in him this one last time. But thirdly, we find here in the text there is a third reason. With heart-wrenching grief, Paul breaks some very sad news to Timothy. We assume Timothy does not know this, but he says, For, here's the reason, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is terrible news. Demas. Demas. He was a trusted member of Paul's band of missionary brothers. In Philemon 24, he is listed along with the greats such as Epaphras and Mark and Aristarchus and Luke. And Demas is there listed with these men and referred to by Paul as my fellow worker. He's listed also in Colossians 4.13. His greetings are sent from the Apostle and Luke and Demas who attends Paul in prison. That means Demas was one of the band, a trusted soldier of Christ. But Demas' affection for Christ and his work shifted to the world. To the alluring attractions of this world, he was called away and he heeded the call and he abandoned the team. We don't know if Demas embraced false doctrine. Perhaps he succumbed to the love of money or to the illicit love of a woman or another man for that matter. 
He may have simply chose ease over suffering for the gospel, as that has been a theme in this book. Suffer with me in the spread of the gospel. In some way, we don't know, Demas fell in love with this world and he left and he went to Thessalonica. But we see just a general area with this map with these red stars as the various areas where these individuals are. So Paul is on the left side of the map at the top left corner in Rome. And Demas has gone to Thessalonica. You see it there in the middle of the map in Greece today. And in this region, has gone back, perhaps home, and has left the team. You'll notice the word love there in verse 10, that he has loved that he, in love with this present world, it is something of a unique word that's used here, and it's the same word that is used in verse 8. All those who have loved Christ appearing. There are those who love Christ appearing. that They are characterized by this love for Christ. Demas has love for this world. He's abandoned that love for Christ, and he's gone to the love of the world and gone back to Thessalonica. Verse 10, Cretans. Now we're back to other members of the team. They have not abandoned Paul, but he has gone to Galatia. I think not in the sense of abandonment, but as with Titus going to Dalmatia, these are now two more members of the team who have been assigned elsewhere, so they're not there with Paul in Rome. They could not help him at this moment. There's a happy note in verse 11. We need to see this kind of as, as bullet points as we understand them today. They're just sort of last minute details that are kind of flying at us in shotgun fashion. Luke, he says, is alone with me. There's a happy note. His trusted Gentile friend and physician, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, the writer of the book of Acts and this history of the early church, this one is still with him there in Rome. And then there's Mark, he mentions next in verse 11, and he says, get Mark. So as you're coming to me, bring with you Mark. Bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What a note of grace. Mark, part of Paul's inner circle, or at least has worked his way back into that circle, Mark is the surname of this man named John. His mother Mary had a house in Jerusalem the disciples used uh, uniquely. His uncle is Barnabas. Remember, this is the man that abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. He left and went back home to Palestine, not willing to put up with the trial and the difficulties that he was facing. He deserted the team. And it led to this great dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Paul says, we cannot trust this man anymore. He has left us in the lurch. He has harmed us. We do not want to lean on him again. Barnabas said, listen, I understand what Mark has done is wrong, but he encourages Mark. He sees good signs in Mark. And Barnabas says, no, this man can be trusted. He has failed, but he can be trusted. And the dispute was so sharp that these two great evangelists parted ways. Paul one direction, Barnabas another with Mark. But Paul was a big man. He didn't hold a grudge. And he could see the grace of God operative in John Mark's life. Bring Mark with you. 
He is useful to me for ministry. I can trust this man. Bring him with. As for other members of the team, verse 12, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus was a Gentile convert from the province of Asia where you see on the map here, about where the word Ephesus is found on the map, uh, that region of Asia there, the Asia Minor, the province of Rome. He was a convert from there and had become a trusted colleague of Paul's. Tychicus was with Paul when he made his famous speech to the Ephesian elders at Miletus. He traveled with Paul also to Jerusalem on Paul's last visit there. Remember, this is one of the individuals that Paul said, here is the fruit of the Gentile mission. Very trusted man, Tychicus. But he's been sent to Ephesus. This might be code word between these two men, Paul and Timothy. They know each other very well. They understand the mission very well. It might be code word for the fact that he's coming to you at Ephesus. He will take your place as you leave Ephesus and come to Rome. We're not sure of that entirely. We can't prove where Timothy is. But it seems most likely he's at Ephesus. And so it's Tychicus that will likely take his place carrying this letter as he carried the letters of Colossians and Ephesians when Paul was imprisoned at an earlier time. So as team members, Timothy hears this point and knows that Titus is not with Paul perhaps delivering this letter and taking his place. Oh, and another thing, another bullet point. Let me throw this in here, verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. A cloak was a large circular piece of heavy material. There were no sleeves in it. There was just a hole in the middle. You stick your neck, your head through that hole and it hung around your body like a poncho, we might call it today, or a rain shawl of some sort. It was heavy material. They would sleep in this material in the winter to stay warm and it protected them from the elements. Winter is coming. And Paul, for reasons unknown, has left behind at the city of Troas his cloak. He's going to need this. The trial may take some time. And in the winter, he will need this protection. So bring that along with you. And also, bring along with you the books and parchments. We have no idea what these books and parchments were. We only know Paul left them in Troas for safekeeping, and now he wants to retrieve them. They may have been the Holy Scriptures. And parchments to write more letters. This parchment, by the way, it's just interesting, is not the cheaper paper that was made out of papyrus, a, a reed that would have been woven together and then smashed. And that was uh, the cheaper paper, though it was expensive. But this is parchment. This is the skin of an animal that was prepared in a very significant way and could be reused. It could be wiped clean in some sense and reused. And perhaps Paul wants to continue to work out his theology with these parchments, we do not know. Perhaps there's something written on them already. Perhaps they are the Scriptures themselves. We're not sure what he has in, in view, but we see the tools of the trade for Paul. Pastors get teased a lot about their books. Tuesday night was the last time two individuals teased me quite a bit about my books. It doesn't take long. Somebody looks at your office and says, that's a lot of books in there. We get teased about it a lot, but you know the joke is really on the pastor who does not love books 
and who does not understand the power of the written word. Written words open windows into the soul of great minds and hearts, and we need to go there. Written words transport us back in time to learn wisdom and perspective from past ages and diverse peoples. We're so oriented as a culture to move into the future, to get onto the frontiers of space of what we don't know and what we think might be out there, to look into the future. But words allow us to peer into the past where there is many times far more fruit for our minds and souls than the speculations of what might become in the days ahead. Written words enable us to communicate our soul to others in a unique way, in a way that is in some sense permanent. They can go back to it so that it stands there almost as a person delivering a message that survives. Above all, God chose to communicate His life-giving Word to us in written text. This was His will. And the people of God are uniquely the people of the Word. This is not the case with many other religions and world religions in the world in which we live. Many that are far more about speculation, far more about feeling, far more about leaving the mind and not thinking at all. But God gave us a book. We are people of words. And those words can open windows into the mind of God to discern His will. Some cynic might say, I thought Paul was about to die. Doesn't he have better things to do than read books and be writing and doing these kinds of things? He's about to die. Well, of course, he doesn't know how long his trial will be. There's enough time for, hopefully, Timothy to get across uh, this whole journey and bring these things to him. He may have more time after that. But I think anyone asking why someone would read and write to the end of their life has yet to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Words are life. And the words of God are our life. Beyond that, our words to one another and from one another are life in some sense. Anyone who understands that, as Paul did, will read and write to stay sane. Even on the day of execution, could we see him read the Word of God. To know it, to love it, to draw strength from it. Paul was a student of the written Word. He was a wordsmith. He was a man of God's Word. And we are all the better for it as we read His words today, some 2,000 years since. Bring the books, Timothy. Bring the parchments. Why and when these items were left at Troas, we can only imagine. Perhaps Paul was traveling in this area when he was arrested. Maybe he had been arrested, and it's here that he has to leave these things behind before he makes the journey across to Rome. We don't know. But it would certainly indicate the possibility, if we understand that there were two Roman imprisonments, that he was here in this region ministering again after the events of the book of Acts. I think it's very likely. So Paul has focused upon his team, where they are, what is to happen, the instructions that he gives. We now move to something of a second consideration, and that is Paul's trials. 
Paul's ordeal there in Rome. And it leaps off the page at us, again in sort of bullet point form, without much explanation. He just simply says with no explanation, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. We do not know who this man is. We do not know what he did to Paul. The Greek word translated great harm was used at times in a legal sense to describe one who informs the authorities against someone else. It's possible that Alexander turned Paul in or testified against him when he was arrested or something along these lines. We don't know. Perhaps he was even a trusted Christian in name. We'll see later that it may well be that he simply was a false teacher. We don't know. But in any event, notice that Paul does not unilaterally forgive Alexander. This is not the context of our times and what our culture would indicate to us. But notice this. He doesn't say, I have forgiven him unilaterally. But rather, because of what Alexander has done, because he remains in a position against God, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much wrong. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. God will hold him accountable. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I should do. But God will hold him accountable for his sin. Understood, unless there is repentance and change. But Paul has more in view than simply to spew this pain. He's concerned for Timothy. And so he says, verse 15, Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. He strongly opposed literally our words. So here it may indicate that Alexander was a false teacher. Whoever he was, whatever he was doing, it's possible that Timothy can run into him. Perhaps at Troas or at Rome itself. Somewhere along the way, you've got to watch out for this man. Continuing this rapid-fire report, he moves on quickly. Verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. His ordeal continues. And this is a painful word. What was his first defense? There's great debate on whether this was his first Roman imprisonment or a first defense here at this time, which seems to be a more likely scenario. Investigation has shown that in Roman law there was a prima actio, that is a, in the Latin, a first defense, a first trial. And at this trial a judge could simply dismiss the case or he could decide the case without any further consideration if he felt it was that easy. But if he was not able to do that, there was need to establish things further. There was then a secunda actio, a second trial, and this could take much time between these two trials. It appears that that's where Paul is. The first preliminary trial has taken place. And as he remembers that setting, standing before a Roman official, with others there to witness, what's in his heart and his memory is nobody stood with me. No one was there. In fact, they all deserted me. Either no one in Rome was able or willing to come to his aid. He can use this word in a very negative way. The word could have a broader sense where some were just unavailable. 
and deserted him in that sense. But the word typically has a very strong meaning. I was deserted. He suffers like his Savior. In the last moments of his life, the last days of his life being deserted. With raw emotion, he recalls this aloneness. Now, there may even be some sense of a legal idea here that it was, is it was customary for an accused Roman citizen to be assigned a, uh, what was called a patronus, patron, who would argue in his defense, and then an advocatus, an advocate, with whom he would take up counsel and would guide him. And perhaps Rome just did not supply either for Paul. We don't know exactly what he means, but I was alone. I was there to give defense for my witness of the Gospel and no one supported me. Now let's stop for a moment. We're talking about a great man of faith here. And I think it would be worthy to consider his psyche. Sort of who he is and how he ticks. Notice here that he expresses his pain. He's not afraid to speak of it. We don't have here the Western individualist, the Lone Ranger, that I will always suffer silently and never tell anyone about my pain. He lays it out there. I was deserted. I mean, really, what does that accomplish for Timothy to learn that Paul was deserted at his defense? It's accomplishing something for Paul. And he is a man that is humble enough to be willing to turn some of his burdens over to others and to ask them to share it with him. Timothy, it was terrible. I was all alone. I was deserted. He expresses his pain. We see secondly his honesty. He is not afraid to describe the failure of others. Whoever these people were, within his inner circle, maybe not, but at least within Rome and other believers there, whoever it was that could help him deserted him. This is not gossip. This is just the facts. And pouring his heart out as one man to a man who can help him and bear the load with him, he shares this pain. They deserted me. Honesty. Thirdly, there's grace. Do you see it? May it not be put to their charge. Echoing the words of Jesus concerning His executioners, may God not charge them. He apparently understands in contrast with Alexander, this was weakness. This was fear. This was busyness of life or whatever else it might be. But may God not hold it against them. And then we see hope. Described here in verse 17. Fleshed out here, but, he says, verse 17, they all deserted me, but, verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Jesus strengthened Paul in his hour of abandonment back in the Jerusalem prison, Acts 23. And so here, in some sense, He stands with Paul and pours His grace into this man to give him strength so that all the Gentiles would hear the message. What does that mean? Clearly not the whole world was watching a broadcast of His preaching. It's hyperbole in some sense, but I think it connects back to Paul's mission. Remember Acts chapter 9, when Christ appeared 
to Paul, you will be my chosen vessel to take the message of Christ to all the Gentiles, to the nations. And so Paul seems to be saying that at the epicenter of the known world, at the capital of the empire, before the greatest earthly tribunal and in the hearing of a crowd of Roman citizens, I stood the test, I proclaimed the gospel, Jesus gave me life and enabled me to speak in my defense and in defense of His truth before this great tribunal. My mission is complete. The reason God chose me has now been fulfilled at this very epicenter of the nations. Christ has been proclaimed. I have been abandoned, but Christ stood with me. And in that moment, I declared the truth. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. There's a temptation to take that phrase as literal, that he was going to be given to the lions because we know Christians indeed were, but it was also a figure of speech that was widely used and it referred to many different things, but generally to some sort of power. And so likely when he says I was delivered from the lion's mouth, he means I was delivered from execution by the emperor I was delivered from the power of the empire in that moment. I could have been executed immediately, but I was given opportunity to speak. I proclaim the gospel, and I'm still alive. I know I'm going to die. He knows the outcome already of the second trial. But as he waits, he rejoices that he's completed his mission. He's been faithful, and the Lord will protect me. Verse 18, He will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We see this blazing hope. He knows that death is not the ultimate enemy now. It's been defeated by Christ. Death will simply usher Him into the presence of Christ. Jesus will bring me safely home. I know this. I have confidence in this. To Him be glory forever and ever. He exalts. Let it be. Tradition says we have no idea if Timothy ever reached him. But there's a tradition that has been long standing that says Paul was taken outside the Ostian gate of the city of Rome. Perhaps walked some ways along that road, but at a particular place in the road that people remembered he was beheaded. He died in infamy, but Jesus brought him safely home. Paul died emboldened by that confidence. There's the pain of abandonment. There's the sorrow of knowing he cannot support his team much longer but there's this hope that Jesus will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom and he exalts in that. He's a man filled with doxology, with praise at this most difficult of moments. I think in contrast to the dying words of those separated from Christ, we could list many or quote many. I think of Sir Francis Newport, the head of an English infidel club, that is one who denied the faith of Christianity, who probably denied the very existence of God. He lived his life saying there is no God, there is no Christ, there is no Christianity. And he spoke often of his lack of faith. Sir Francis Newport 
committed suicide. And in a last written word, he said this, You need not tell me there is no God. For I know there is one. And I know that I am in His presence. You need not tell me there is no hell. I feel myself already slipping. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. Oh, that fire. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. He wrote this for posterity. Thinking of this one separated from Christ. Thinking of this agony as he dies. Think of this mirror opposite in the words of Paul. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the faith. I have kept the faith. Where's his confidence? Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And to all of you who love his appearing, who long to be with him, the hope, the joy, the confidence, the peace. Watch, Christian. How a true believer dies. And hold on to the Christ who will take you safely home. Paul concludes with some final greetings. Greet Prissa and Aquila and Onesiphorus. These just bring back memories to us of the, of the journey that he has faced with these soldiers in Christ. Prissa, this shortened form of Priscilla, a term of endearment. These dear friends that he met at Corinth and they're working together as tent makers. They undoubtedly talked theology all day. Talked about the cause of the Gospel. And, and, and he so worked with Aquila and Priscilla that they came to the place where when they went with him across to Ephesus, they stayed and were able to disciple the great preacher Apollos. To set him straight in his thinking on some things and to disciple him and bring him forward. They've gone back to Rome and they had a church in their home there mentioned in Romans chapter 16 and now perhaps back at Ephesus with Timothy depending on where he is. Say hi to them for me. And to Onesiphorus. All these people that have abandoned me. Greet Onesiphorus. Of this man, he said in chapter 1, verse 16, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. In fact, greet his family, whether he's dead or en route somewhere. Greet the family of this man who refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome at an earlier imprisonment, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Greet his family. Dear friends, Erastus, he's back to his team. Just bullet points, not all organized. Erastus, he is at Corinth ministering the Gospel there. And I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Only 
perhaps 35 miles from where Timothy is, is stationed, remembering the difference of travel in that day, he's informing him perhaps that Trophimus is here. Trophimus, along with Tychicus, these are men who are Gentile converts that Paul took back to Jerusalem to say, here's the fruit of the labors of the Gospel. Another trusted man, sadly sick. And that says something to us, doesn't it? Paul, on numerous occasions, healed people of illnesses. But healing is never dependent upon the healer. It is always dependent upon the sovereign God. And so even Paul, the apostle, in a day of miraculous gift and healing, was unable to bring this soldier back to his feet. I left him there sick. He can't help himself. He's so anxious. He says it again. Verse 21, Do your best to come before winter. Get here before they shut down the shipping lanes. I need to see you. I need my cloak to keep warm. I want the books and the parchments. Please come soon, Timothy. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Apparently Roman believers. Are these among the people who abandoned him? Perhaps they were unavailable at the time. Perhaps they did abandon him and he's putting verse 16's prayer into practice. Don't hold it against them. And he doesn't hold it against them. We're not sure. But there were believers there in Rome. And from these believers, he sends greeting and it says to us, shows to us, this pulsating fellowship and interconnectedness of the Christian family. We are closer with people in Asia and Africa and the Middle East than we are with our own neighbors here who we like very much and talk to and support very much. But there is a oneness of the body of Christ that spreads across the seas to various people, groups, and nations. And they are our brothers and sisters. The brothers and sisters here send greetings to you there. And here it closes. The last words we have from Him. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Fourth century preacher Chrysostom said well of this ending. There can be no better prayer than this. Grieve not for my departure. The Lord will be with thee. Paul is soon to depart this earth, but Timothy's breaking heart should be comforted by his trust that Jesus would never leave him or forsake him, and that God's undeserved favor would rest upon him. If you are gathered with us here today, you have no confidence. You say, I have no confidence that my sins have been forgiven. I have no confidence that I am part of the, those who spread the Gospel of Christ. I do not know what my relationship with God will be. Let me say to you, you need this grace. You need this grace. You need the grace of God. You need for Him to be with you because someday you will stand before Him in eternity. You will stand before Him as your judge or you will stand before Him as the One who provides your righteousness. How does He do that? 
by His grace. He takes your sin. It is placed upon Christ who dies in the sinner's place, paying that penalty and defeating death. You need that grace. That gift from God. You will not stand before a God who puts you on a scale and weighs your good against your bad. You will not stand before a God who sees you as righteous in His eyes. You will stand before a holy God and you need this grace. Embrace the gift of saving grace today. If you'll endure with me just for a few more moments. I'd like to just draw out three lines of help that we find here. Three areas of significance we should consider as these words come to close. This goes against us in our pluralistic world. But number one, Paul takes sides. He sees sides. Identify with the Gospel. You are on the side of Christ or you are not on the side of the Gospel. You are faithful to Christ or unfaithful. And that's how Paul saw it. That was the the way that he perceived the world. And we notice in this text as it closes out that Paul records names. Those who abandon the faith and love the world are named. Those who deserted Christ's cause are named. Those who abandoned Christ's teacher are named. And those who remained loyal to Christ and served His cause faithfully are named in writing for posterity. If we lived around Rome, we lived around where Timothy was ministering or wherever this whole thing thing found us, where would we be named? Among those faithful to the cause of the Gospel? Among those involved in it? Or would we be named among those who had abandoned it for the love of the world? We look at these great leaders of the faith. We know that they're just people like us, but we're, we're awed by their faithfulness by their willingness to be persecuted. And we can have a tendency to be intimidated by this. But listen, if you say, I don't want to love this world, I want to be among those few chosen of God who advance the Gospel, then just take some steps forward. Orient your life so that you spend it in some way investing in the advance of the Gospel of Christ. We had opportunity to meet people, to welcome them in the name of Christ on some level at our national night out just recently. Some of you doing that also in your neighborhoods. Tonight we open our doors and we invite and have been inviting children from around this community and hopefully we are inviting children from the communities where we live to come here and to hear the Gospel the next four nights and to invite their parents on Thursday night to hear the Gospel. Get involved. Stick your neck out with one step forward. Invite a child to come. Aid 
the work some way in the background, if that is all that you, where you find involvement, but get involved in the cause of Christ. This is why we are striving through our home groups to provide opportunities for us to join together so that at the end of the day our name is listed on the right side of the account. Here's someone who stood for the Gospel of Christ. As you know, the culture of this church, we don't twist arms to get people to do jobs because they have to be done. This is an invitation to join the most glorious task on the planet. To join with the people of Christ across the face of this globe to be those who are part of the advance of the Gospel. Through prayer, through giving, through serving. May Christ find us in His cause. And secondly, as we think on that, it's very clear from this text that our theater is the world. We need to think globally. The Christian church is a globe-trotting people. We go throughout the whole world, and it's not always safe out there, is it? We are to think and act globally to strategically and purposefully advance the Gospel to the very fringes and the frontiers of where that Word has not been heard. And we go without guns. Sometimes proclaiming the message to people who are armed with them. Now it's not necessary that each one of us leave our home necessarily in the Gospel, but leaving home is something we do as a church It's something that we support. There may be a small number who actually leave our place, but there are some who should. And we go with them as a church and support them as we globally move throughout this world to be a light for the Gospel of Christ as a church, as we are, not hypocritically, but as we are as individuals in our own worlds. And let's remember this and never forget it. When we gather here on the Lord's Day, we are a long ways from Jerusalem. The church was not born here. We are an outpost, a beachhead of the Gospel of Christ. And we labor here together as a church, holding out that light in this world. Thirdly, our fellowship is intimate and we need to preach the Word. This is our endeavor to proclaim this message as a body, as a people, as a team that Christ has called. How privileged we are, chosen out of the world to join Christ's army of foot soldiers who traverse the earth to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus to those shackled by chains of darkness. Ours is no fraternity of national birth. Ours is an eternal brotherhood into which we were adopted by the regenerating power of God's Spirit. Ours is no temporal battle against flesh and blood. Ours is an assault against the gates of hell with eternal consequences. Ours is no skirmish between two earthly kingdoms. Ours is a cosmic battle for the universal kingdom of God against the powers of darkness. And our champion is no earthly king. Our champion does not come with guns blazing to force submission. Our champion laid down his life and died. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death and will rule the earth 
with a rod of iron. Though few and despised, though persecuted and maligned, we form a fraternal band that spans the globe in the most significant battle in the universe. And may God grant us all grace. That when it comes to our last words, they will express our fidelity to Christ and our earnest involvement in the worldwide proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. May it be, should God take us not very slowly at a very old age, but may it be, should He take us while we continue to work, that He takes us with work that others must fulfill. That is, that He takes us from the work as He takes us safely home. As we journey to Christ's heavenly kingdom, may God's grace be with us. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we sense our insecurities, our failures, our fears, our weaknesses before this great fraternity of missionaries. But God, I pray that You will move within us to risk, to speak to others for You I pray that You will pour out Your grace and Your mercy that we would do so faithfully this week as we proclaim it to young people and as we in our private lives proclaim it to neighbors and friends and relatives and others who know not Christ as Savior. For anyone separated from Him, we plead, Father, that You bring them to Christ today. For those of us who know You, we hail the power of Christ. We praise You that You will bring us safely home, that there is a crown of righteousness that awaits those who are faithful, and we plead with You, Father, to keep us faithful. If we are not, may You reveal that and bring us like Mark to repentance. May we be faithful to the end and advance this Gospel by Your grace alone. Through Christ we pray. Amen.